Welcome to this Euractive debate on COP26. Can it be a game changer? Our event today is supported by Zurich. You can follow the debate at hashtag EADebates. Please tweet your comments using the hashtag. Our social media team will respond. I'm Brian McGuire. And to ask questions, go to the chat section and use the ask button. Build as the world's best last chance to get runway climate, runaway climate to change under control. The COP26 summit takes place this November in Glasgow, Scotland. More than 190 world leaders will use the occasion to update their emission reduction plans following the 2015 Paris Agreement. The focus of the conference is set against four main goals. A step change in commitments to emissions reduction, strengthening adaptation to climate change impacts, getting finance flowing for climate action, and enhancing international collaboration. President Biden set the scene with the U.S. returning to the Paris Agreement and plans for a transatlantic green technology alliance. And with the establishment of an EU-U.S. high-level climate action group, a commitment to become carbon neutral by 2050 has been affirmed by the EU and the U.S., two of the biggest uh, CO2 emitters after China. The European Commission also tabled a package of energy and climate laws in July, aiming, aimed at reaching the EU's 2030 goal of cutting emissions by 55% and putting it on track to hit net zero by 2050. So can COP26 be a game changer? Our uh, panel today, distinguished, all of them, uh, are uh, to Philip uh, Tulkins, he's the head of the Climate and uh, Planet uh, Boundaries Unit, DD Research and Innovation at the European Commission. We have Michael Bloss, he's a member of the European Parliament, a member of the Envy Committee at the European Parliament. Jana Ur Lejak, she's the deputy head of the Slovenian delegation at the UNFCCC. And Anthony Frogart, a senior research fellow and deputy director of energy, environment and resources program at the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And also Alison Martin, chief executive officer EMEA at Zurich. Great to have you all with us today. Thanks for taking uh, the time. Uh, Philippe, because you have an extraordinary title and responsible for planetary boundaries, uh, the best uh, job title here today, uh, you're going to kick off with the short introductory statements. Philippe. Thank you, Brian. Uh, if you agree, I'll speak about the role of research and innovation towards climate policies, as we have here in the panel uh, a representative of the EU presidency in the panel to talk about the, the real policies voice. But I think it's important to go back also to roots and to answer the question uh, of this session. I would say that COP26 is another opportunity to make climate policy deliver. It's not the first one and it's not the last chance before the apocalypse. It is though high time to ensure that all the commitments and mechanisms proposed in the Paris Agreement are defined and implemented forcefully and that this Paris Agreement really delivers. As focal point of the European Commission to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I can say that the science on, on climate change is robust and that the message, messages are clear. The margin of maneuver to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius of temperature increase is now very limited. And even for the two degrees C target, the magnitude and pace of changes required are unprecedented in human civilization's history. I have no time here to summarize the key findings of the latest report of the IPCC adopted last August. They focus on the physical basis, but I would encourage everyone here attending to take the time to read in the text uh, of the summary for the policymakers endorsed by 192 governments. This is where you will see what science has to say on this and, and the messages have been all endorsed by the governments. And this is only the 
it was the first part of the sixth assessment cycle uh, reports of the IPCC. Next February, we'll have the Working Group 2 report on the impacts and vulnerabilities. And next March, the much-awaited report on the mitigation aspects, uh, also from the IPCC. While respecting the, ob the obligation to be policy relevant, but not policy prescriptive, the messages from the IPCC were reinforced from one assessment cycle to the next one since 1988. Thanks to the, also to the investments put in research and innovation, notably by the EU Framework Programme for Research and the remarkable efforts of the scientific community that needs to be praised here. They would not not be climate policies if they would be, wouldn't be first excellent science there. Though action on both mitigation and adaptation is too slow. And science confirms today that much more effort and faster progress need to occur to meet the respective commitments of the Paris Agreement. Policymakers will need courage in the front line, though all actors of our economy and society have a responsibility in these immense challenges ahead of us. If we fail, it will hurt. And it started already, as we saw with the floods, the fires uh, on many places on Earth. For the EU as well, implementing the Fit for 55 package by 2030 and getting to climate neutrality by 2050 will be extremely challenging, as the emission reduction efforts required in less than 30 years are very significant. Contributing to meeting the climate targets of 2030 and 2050 is what EU research and innovation stands for. The program Horizon Europe dedicates 35% of its budget to climate-relevant activities, and all activities funded by the EU should respect the do-no-harm principles enshrined in the Green Deal. This is what the EU strives for. All components of society need to be mobilized to support this unprecedented challenge at EU and global levels. Looking forward to the debate. Philippe, thank you. Michael Bloss, over to you. Yeah, thanks a lot um, for the invitation and um, well, debating if the COP26 can be a game changer. It should be, um, and actually it should be the conference, five conferences after Paris, where the world comes together and counting all of the ambition levels together, we should actually fulfill the Paris Agreement, staying well below two degrees and actually getting to 1.5 degrees. And this is unfortunately not happening. Um, we are counting together. There's a global stock take happening and it goes to 2.7 degrees around that. So we are not there. Um, hopefully I can say we are not there yet, but um, as it was just mentioned now, the science is quite clear and we do not have time anymore. 1.5 degrees, that's what the UNFCCC report says, can be already reached in year 2030. Um, and if we really want to have a, a slight chance to go to 1.5 degrees, we need to be much faster. Um, I believe uh, in order for it to be a game changer, we need to have real climate leaders. And the European Union is saying that we are a climate leader. But I think um, in order to be really truthful and also be able to, to make that argument, we should, with our own targets, be in line uh, with the Paris Agreement goals, but uh, for instance, the Climate Action Tracker, which is uh, um, a science-based um, 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 think tank that checks on the different targets, it uh, rates the European Union's own targets as insufficient 
um, because it's between two and three degrees. So we have to be actually better uh, than that in order to be a real leader, in order also to be the the, the actor that is um, pushing for the um, game-changing moments. There are some interesting things happening at, at COP. Um, the uh, COP presidency uh, probably will start an initiative for a coal phase out by developed countries by the year 2030. I think this is really important and the EU um, as a global climate leader should be part of this coalition for coal phase out by the year 2030. And there will be probably another initiative for the end of the um, fossil internal combustion engine by the year 2035. Also here, um, this is uh, what in the Fit for 55 package of the EU is already in. Um, I hope that the European Union is part of it. Um, another thing that uh, we will be discussing, which could be a game changer in the opposite side, is the question of international carbon markets, Article 6, and the question, can CO2 reduction certificates be traded internationally, and what are the rules for it? And here um, we had this at the last conference in, in Madrid as well. Uh, some countries are still pushing, for instance, for some things like double counting. And if we do not have a, a very tight, uh, strict rules on uh, international carbon trading, then actually there is only CO2 emission reduction on paper, but not in real world. And if um, this happens, then the whole uh, um, integrity of the Paris system uh, will be undermined, so should, we should be really avoiding um, um, having something in, in Article 6 on international carbon trading that is then undermining the Paris Agreement. Um, looking forward to this uh, debate with you now and uh, see whether this really can be a game changer or not. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, Jana, over to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, at the beginning, I would just like to underline that uh, negotiations within UNFCCC are already in full swing. So for most negotiators, COP is just one of the events, uh, the culmination of events, but, um, uh, but work is already being done um, daily. So um, uh, this is a perspective that probably should be taken in, into account when uh, when talking about the, uh, the possible outcome of uh, COP26. Um, additionally, um, COP26 in Glasgow will be definitely a game changer because it's uh, for the first time in the history of climate negotiations, talks will be, will be conducted in very special pandemic circumstances, which are still quite unpredictable, um, but they will definitely add to the um, to the negotiation swings, um, uh, so to say. Um, as for the substance, um, um, both Philippe uh, in, and Michael already mentioned, mentioned lots of, um, that there is quite, quite a lot uh, on the table. Um, our planet is already in the midst of an unprecedented environmental crisis. Um, IPCC report is uh, very cl clear. We are running out of time and we, I really hope that um, the changes will, uh, will appear uh, sooner than later. Thank you. Janet, thank you so much. Anthony, over to you. Thank you. Um, and yeah, great pleasure to be here. Uh, 
in terms of the title, it says, can it be a game changer? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, but the key question is, will it be? Uh, and I think the previous speakers have highlighted some of the areas that we will judge COP26 against. And so maybe just to build on some of those. I mean, I think firstly, it is about delivery. It, it isn't what we're looking at is very different from the situation in Paris where the intention was to sign a, an agreement. We're now looking at seeing how that agreement is being implemented. And so delivery implementation is absolutely key. As Michael mentioned, we are nowhere near the targets in terms of two or one or even 1.5 degrees. Uh, and so we need to see significant progress in terms of the NDCs, the nationally determined contribution, the pledges from the different signatories of Paris. The next two weeks will be crucial for this. Um, we have seen some step changes in terms of uh, pledges. United States, Japan, EU, UK, all have done uh, a raised ambition and, and raised their pledges, but not all key countries has. And I think what we are looking towards in terms of pre-COP is the G20 the weekend before, so the end of October, uh, where in Rome, we'll see the G20 meeting. And the G20 countries have said that they will, uh, prior to COP, revise their NDCs. So in particular, looking at India, China, Russia, Australia, these are all countries that can make a difference in terms of the overall emissions level in 2030. So for me, this is a, a key test. Will we see raising ambition? The second area is about uh, the 100 billion. So previously, the developed countries have pledged 100 billion to assist developing and vulnerable countries to meet their mitigation and adaptation targets. Uh, it is something that should be met, needs to be met, both in terms of its on the ground impact, but also politically. Um, we have to have the, the developing uh, vulnerable countries feeling that they are being supported in this transition. Um, without it, I think there will be very bad feeling. So I, I see this as a, a key test for COP26 is will we reach the 100 billion per year pledge that developing countries have made. And finally, just the, the other area that we need to look at, um, and I think Michael mentioned in terms of Article 6, there's other issues about transparency and, and uh, time limits in terms of reporting. These are sort of the nuts and the bolts uh, that we, we need to have agreed uh, in order to make the, the Paris Agreement function better. So for me, those are the three areas that we will be particularly following uh, in the coming month. Thank you very much indeed. Anthony, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Alison, Alison Martin. Thanks, Brian. So I, I, I would very much agree with my fellow panelists. So I think this year we've seen lots of commitments, but words clearly aren't going to call the panic. Actions will. And I think as Philippe started off with saying, actually we need speed and courage to take the actions now rather than continuing just to make new commitments i think this year over the course of the summer again we've been reminded very starkly of the reasons why the action has to happen on both to on both the adaptation side to the physical risks that is crystallizing right here right now and also on the transition side so that we actually save the future i think for us we produce annually a climate change scorecard so we published it in september we look at 12 different variables to assess the probability of us being able to actually hit the one and a half degree, um, which obviously is the limit that uh, has been recognized by science to the earlier points from the IPCC. Now, we saw this year that a little bit more had gone green, although it's still amber in total, but that's very much a function of the pandemic. So things like renewable energy is a real positive um, that we're seeing increasing 
um, increasing amounts of renewable energy being put onto the grid systems, but fuel subsidies and the actual amounts of carbon being emitted. Uh, we're seeing already in 2021 the reduction and the reversal of many of the good positive steps that we saw last year. I think on in terms of the carbon pricing variable, which is one of the key ones we look at, uh, I could be optimistic and say we've seen some positive steps, so more than 20% now of uh, carbon emissions are actually covered by some form of pricing scheme. However, it's simply not enough. In order for us to really meet the ambition of, of Paris, we need to break the link between greenhouse gas emissions and economic growth. Um, and we clearly haven't done that yet. Uh, and we at Zurich believe one of the best ways of doing that is to continue to roll out carbon pricing type schemes so that we have a true price on the externality of the production of emissions. And if it's implemented in an appropriate way, uh, we can effectively make sure that the economics of market dynamics will enable us to deliver on the kinds of investment that we critically need with the kind of transparency and consistent measurement that's going to enable us to be effective in this transition. Now, the question, I guess, was can COP26 deliver this? Um, I think my view at the moment is perhaps it can deliver on some of this. Uh, and I am a bit of an optimist, but I hope I'm not being too optimistic in that. I think perhaps is not uh, the definition of optimism, Alison. So let's, let's see how, how we get with this. Uh, Michael, let's bring back some of these remarks that uh, you made also, Alison made about uh, carbon markets. And uh, you mentioned about the, the climate action tracker where the EU is between two and three degrees. That's not amazing, given the amount of uh, discussion there's been uh, since Paris as well, that we're still two to three degrees on our own uh, tracker when we're uh, Europe is talking about being a global leader and uh, being hypercritical of those who don't fall into line in a hurry as well. Why are we so far off the mark? Well, um, because we decided so and we had a long uh, debate around the um, climate law in last year. Um, and um, there we had different positions. Actually, the European Parliament um, had a majority a position to be really uh, ambitious. We wanted to have a gross 60% reduction instead of the net 55% that was then um, voted uh, by the council also. So there are uh, a lot of uh, also small things where we can actually really improve, for instance, um, now in the fit for 55 uh, package we say that there should be no tax breaks anymore for kerosene but the tax breaks will only end in the year 2032 so for this could end we are still giving free co2 certificates for um, internal flights in the eu because with the explanation um, otherwise carbon leakage would happen so they they would fly outside of the european union so there's a lot of uh, things where we can actually be really better um, uh, than currently pro proposed so um, this is uh, something what in the next two years i hope will happen that we will discuss uh, this big uh, um, legislative package and also improve it to be on track at least for the two degrees um, but yeah, we had a big chance uh, to be really in line with science last year. And unfortunately, because um, of the political circumstances, there was uh, no majority for being really in line with, with science and with Paris.
Philippe, is it fair to say Europe hasn't done its own homework in this, uh, or is this just political reality that we push too far too fast, uh, we leave the public behind, and we end up with uh, populists who, uh, even climate deniers, who uh, will embrace this as, as a means to uh, find their way into power and actually reverse uh, what has been achieved in terms of climate policy? Why are we so far behind? Oh, this very political question, of course, I'll try to answer in a not too political way. Um, we should also recall that the, uh, the European Union, although uh, big, uh, is, is not uh, the main emitter. Uh, this is not to put the blame on the others, certainly not. The fact that the US now returns uh, into the game is, is, is a remarkable development. Also, the fact that they took a commitment to climate neutrality by 2050 is also remarkable. But uh, nevertheless, I think we lost too much time in uh, looking uh, at what the others are doing. And perhaps we could have uh, worked more on what we could achieve. Although we need to also recall that the European Union is, uh, has been uh, meeting its objectives since the beginning of climate policies. The 20% target was, was reached and, and the uh, EU can show uh, that it delivers uh, on its commitment, uh, which is quite uh, um, not, not sufficiently known in the population. In the population, uh, uh, we assume that uh, commitments taken by politicians are never met. Some are, and they were met, and the economy of the EU was not wrecked. This is an important lesson, because I have been working on climate policies uh, since quite a while, and uh, the economic analysis of the file uh, often um, was anticipating a high cost, uh, in particular in the US, but also in the EU. And this did not materialize. And we have discovered that through innovation, actually, we can do much more uh, at, a, uh, at a lower price. And this is a message of hope for the future. We can do even more and we can sustain uh, a sound economy that is working efficiently towards uh, sustainability. Thank you, Alison. You know the economic growth and uh, greenhouse gas uh, cycle. You know, how do we break uh, that chain? And you know, twenty percent of carbon uh, covered by by pricing at the moment. You know, how do we change that system? And just like Philippe said, the the cost it has it has been adjusted, and we can recalculate now. And here, in the United States, for example, the infrastructure bill, which is uh, slowly going through uh, Congress, has a lot of focus on investing in innovation to achieve uh, climate objectives as well and to build resilience. So, you know, are, are you optimistic in, in this sense that the, this decoupling of economic growth and uh, climate damage is possible and is actually happening now? So I think there were two questions there. Is it possible? Absolutely, yes. Is it happening right now? Possibly not right now. I mean, I, I think we clearly see the amount of investments that is needed in order to support the transition. I mean, that has hugely, potentially massive benefits for all economies who choose to do it. So whether that is the US's infrastructure bill, whether that's the EU's um, green New Green Deal or the Recovery Resolution Funds, I mean, all of this, these trillions of dollars that are going in to support the kinds of infrastructure that we will need in order to support transition, that supports growth, that supports jobs, prosperity. Um, so, so that would make me optimistic that, and because I would align with that, the fact that this is something that business is calling for. How can we support it? How can long-term investors such as ourselves 
How can we be part of this? So we have capital we would like to be able to put to work at this. I think a great announcement last week, obviously, and the successful issuance of the EU's 12 billion green bond. I think more and more governments issuing green bonds, I think that can only help as well. So on the investment side, I think all of the, the momentum is certainly positive, but the amounts are clearly nowhere near enough yet. Um, but hopefully that's simply a yet. Uh, I think on the, the broader carbon pricing question, uh, I think Philippe said it earlier, it's a very political topic, clearly. And I think unless um, the population are convinced appropriately with sufficient transparency around how this is going to impact on their wallets. So how, how can we make sure that we can redistribute uh, the amount so that it doesn't become a tax on those who are most vulnerable within communities? I think in principle, the economics of it works well and it provides the right kind of market signals to enable the investment that we need into clean technology. Um, but without it being very thoughtfully and carefully applied, clearly can have very inequitable consequences. Thank you. Uh, Anthony, just to build on what Alison said, you, ensuring that there's an equitable uh, change here in terms of uh, policy direction and achieving climate objectives. Uh, you know, the infrastructure bill, for example, and the Green Deal, they, they're focused on innovation as part of this package as well, which is designed also to, to ensure job creation in the long term as well but part of this is resilience so it's not just about uh, carbon reduction but also mitigation of uh, climate harm so building uh, infrastructure which can sustain floods and and uh, and fire as well so you know are, do you see this uh, this rebalancing in terms of economic uh, possibility uh, as uh, uh, something which can really be achieved not necessarily by focusing on just in carbon reduction but focusing on, on innovation and investment as well, Anthony. Yeah, I mean, it's addressing climate change is a, is a package, isn't it? It, it? We need to look at it by sector in terms of mitigation, but also then in terms of adaptation, uh, building resilience within new infrastructure. And we have seen pledges, uh, obviously the 55 within the EU, uh, a lot of money going in, into climate friendly activities, hopefully in the United States, I do think that the infrastructure and the other bill that, are, uh, as you said, pain going painfully through the legislative process in the US will be crucial. Um, it really needs to be delivered by COP uh, in order to give the US some validity to its its plans. Without without this, um, yeah, it's much more difficult then to, to put pressure or encourage other countries to move ahead with uh, their mitigation plans. If I could add a couple of things. One is in terms of uh, what was said, the, the importance of redistribution. Um, we know that the carbon price is an important uh, vehicle for highlighting the environmental externalities associated with the use of fossil fuels. Uh, we know that there are huge differences in the carbon price. Uh, for example, in the EU, it's around 60 euros a tonne. In China, it, who introduced carbon market for the first time this year, it's less than $10 a tonne. And a global average of around three. So there's huge differences. Uh, but despite these differences, in all cases, it's politically contentious. And we can reduce some of the, some of the political opposition by ensuring that it is a vehicle for redis redistribution. So to enable some of the investment within mitigation and adaptation in, in poorer countries or in, in poorer parts of individual countries, so poorer regions. So it touched upon those, but can I just go back one one question in terms of the EU in, in terms of is that okay? Yes, go ahead, no problem. Yeah, yes, yeah, sorry. Just uh, 
as a Brit, I don't really want to defend the EU, but I will do. No, I mean, it's, seriously, in terms of the 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 Fit Fifty Five package, it isn't adequate, but it is quite ambitious in certain areas, um, and it doesn't rate uh, in terms of meeting the two degrees, but it is better than a num than most other countries, and so I I think it's important to recognise that it is ambitious, but I think in particular sectors we the eu needs to go much further and faster um so we can see that successful change within uh the the switch for electricity supply much more needs to be done on energy efficiency much more needs to be done in in the sort of food and, and land use sector where it's much more difficult to reduce emissions so I, I i think it is encouraging uh what's happened so to go from 40 to 55 percent cut is good not good enough but it is better than many other countries Excellent. I, I do, UK's uh, carbon reduction strategy of shortages and uh, lack of trucks going through the country is to be applauded as well, Anthony. Uh, short term, though, that may seem. Um, <laughs> okay, so I want to talk, Jana, about uh, the gamesmanship that's involved here as well. Uh, Paris was, was uh, torturous to get an agreement on the table. Uh, you know, there's a different uh, dynamic at play now today as well. But when it comes to China, Dealing with trade policy and simultaneously climate policy and throwing human rights in, into the mix as well, that's a little tricky. So in terms of how the European Union is uh, conducting its negotiations, does it simply have to take a, a, a laser-like focus on climate here or are we trying to balance other uh, critical dimensions of, of human rights and, and trade as well? Yana. Yeah, um, if Paris was um, was treacherous, um, Glasgow is going to be even more so, I would say. Um, uh, if you, I would just, I would like to go back also because uh, uh, the stimulus of uh, uh, the, uh, the stimulation of the debate here is uh, uh, really great. But um, to sum up, just on China, um, I would say that um, that. Too much focus on just one player is never, never a uh, uh, wise thing, I would say. Um, China is probably not the main, um, the main um, player in terms of the Glasgow outcome, because we have so many different parties with so many different, um, um, different propositions on the table that um, probably uh, it's it's um, it's best to have a very uh, very quiet diplomacy, um, respecting uh, different measurements which are used uh, in China's uh, economy and uh, during negotiation process. Uh, they don't have the same the same approach on nationally determined determined contributions. Um, they will if they will go to two hundred and sixty. Um, it is their choice, but we can probably do uh, most if if we um, sit with them as often as we can and try to just to pair uh, our methodologies and our different ways of, of thinking. That would be on short, but if I uh, also can go back to climate resilience, which is uh, probably one of the I'm wearing the EU presidency uh, hat at the moment. One of the biggest issue, uh, issues of my, uh, my country's presidency. 
Um, I would say that the basic realities of climate change in, uh, in, in, uh, in terms of climate resilience are the follows. Uh, we need to understand that costs of inaction are much, much higher than uh, those of, uh, of not acting, any, uh, of not, of not acting. Um, and there are many different ways and options of adaptations from incremental to transformative, um, transfer activities, uh, managed retreats, um, um, etc. Um, and we need to basically ensure that the options used are no regrets measures. Um, such as, uh, as you mentioned, investing in, in green infrastructure. Excellent. I like that phrase, no regrets measures. Uh, it, it seems to me that in terms of, of political communication, there should be much more discussion about that and much less uh, about increasing taxes on, on, uh, on carbon, which automatically translates into my, my car is going to be more expensive uh, to run. Uh, Michael, let's talk a little bit about finance on this as well. You, you talked about transparency uh, earlier. You know, what are the big issues here? What, what needs to be addressed that would make the most impact? And uh, if Glasgow could deliver on that, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be particularly happy. What's going to shift the agenda and uh, achieve real, uh, real uh, clarity? Yeah, I hope I understood everything um, because unfortunately it seems my connection is not that good. So infrastructure investments should always happen also in uh, in Europe and in Germany into uh, uh, good uh, yeah, uh, internet connections. As it is was said, um, in 2009, there was the promise to give um, um, de developing countries $100 billion a year um, for um, their adaptation for the mitigation um, efforts and these uh, have not met been met yet and we will also not meet them the European Commission and Ursula von der Leyen in her um, State of the European Union speech she announced additional um, finances going towards uh, climate finance uh, but also with these additional uh, billions even and uh, we are not there yet so I think if this really needs to happen um because we know that how do you say like there is uh, the the investments in the south they are a lot more effective in terms of um emission reduction per dollar than than we have it uh, in 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 uh, de developing countries so it actually really makes uh, a lot of sense um but yeah it is not easy as we are um, struggling to get uh, financing on uh, many different issues also inside the european union uh, financing the transition is something that we we need to discuss and we uh, also need to discuss how we get all of this investment flowing and here i think it's a good mix between uh, public and private money but also uh, for instance when we see there's a lot of demand for green bonds uh, but uh, still um, a lot of for instance uh, companies uh, that want to decarbonize they are also still searching for investors that give them actually the trust uh, that the decarbonization will also work just on on the green bonds investment as well i was uh, discussing this in the context of COVID and, and uh, digital technology of the day uh, too but the Juncker plan when it was rolled out it had uh, commissioner katainen running around europe as uh, selling uh, investment projects as well and you know people had, i just discussed this with at the time they said look the finance is fine but what we need are projects and uh, the big investors wanted to see uh, substantial projects do you think we need a a, a climate uh, salesman or woman to be going around europe selling 
uh, the projects and the, the green bonds to move this forward faster rather than something which is simply sitting on the shelf as an option, Michael? I think that we need uh, at least a, a clear um, system that qualifies what is green and what is not uh, for financing. And this is the EU taxonomy for sustainable finance. Um, however, here we are also currently in a decision-making process. Some believe that nuclear energy and even uh, gas um, is uh, sustainable. I would not say that. Not for nuclear energy because it is completely unclear where to uh, store the nuclear waste. Um, this is a huge problem and we know this has to be safe for the next million years and we know that this is actually almost impossible to find something that is safe for the next uh, millions of years. And uh, for gas also, it is uh, it is um, very um, climate uh, intensive. It has uh, very negative effects on, on the climate crisis. Um, counting not only um, the emission uh, when burning, but also counting the methane emissions um, of the transport. So um, yeah, the, 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 the EU taxonomy could be, I think, a, a great game changer, uh, but it really needs to be uh, done well. Thank you. Uh, Philippe, in the same uh, kind of direction, you know, in terms of the investment, do we need to up our game when it comes to, to selling the, the financial opportunities here, the business opportunities uh, of investing in climate-worthy uh, projects and having them financed through green bonds and other projects like this, other structures like this, Philippe? Yeah, what I see is that the business is ready to move and they are very efficient uh, when, when they are pushed to move. Uh, we even see that now uh, with the increase of the uh, energy prices, uh, part is due to a shortage of uh, some fossil fuels uh, because they disinvested uh, some of the uh, energy companies in uh, fossil fuel and then there is a lack of supply. Uh, there are many reasons, but it shows that business is able to react fast even before the legislations are adopted, only on the signals, the policy uh, signals. And therefore, yes, we need uh, to find a way to deploy faster. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but the research program of the EU uh, Horizon can fund to a certain level of application, which is called a technology readiness level. I don't want to get technical here, but there's no deployment program. So this means that all this research is funded by the public entities, and then it's left to the uptake by uh, society, business uh, and others. And this is this is where we lose a lot of time. It's well known, this issue of the Death Valley uh, in Europe. Uh, and it, it, it's unfortunate because we have no time for the transition. We need to uh, also redefine the role of the public sector in there to bring these solutions that are there, that have been uh, developed through research and innovation faster to the ground. And we are trying to do this through uh, what is called the missions of Horizon Europe. I don't know if you heard about this, but then I can make a little bit of publicity for it. This was adopted by the Commission on the 29th of September. And the missions are about that. It's about uh, bringing adaptation to climate change uh, on place-based activities in some areas in Europe where the, there are some critical needs. It's about uh, having 100 climate neutral cities, protecting the oceans and so on. There are five missions and four are called the Green Deal missions. And this is a vehicle to try to go faster to the deployment phase through the usage of different um, funding instruments, be it public instruments and private instruments. And the instruments have a lot to to do in there. They can help us very much. 
two commercial pitches in there. Thank you, Philippe. Excellent. And uh, Anthony, when you look at the, the this landscape as described by, by Philippe, you, there's a lot there on the table which can be done. And you, we're, we're talking about COP26 and, uh, and uh, Glasgow and the big policy dimensions. But if business is as ready as Philippe says, uh, it's it's not really down to uh, the policymakers in, in large part. It's it's simply a matter of the action actionable uh, business models. Do, do you see it that way? Is, is there enough on the table to get this done if, uh, to achieve our climate objectives if uh, if business is more engaged and the, the finance is more uh, easily available? Um, it's always a combination, isn't it? I mean, the the scale of the increase in investment is just extraordinary. Um, so if you look at the IEA, it published its uh, World Energy Outlook last week. Basically, we need to increase the investment in low-carbon technologies threefold uh, th this decade. So it isn't the market is gradually increasing, uh, but it's not going fast enough. If you look at Bloomberg New Energy Finance in terms of their annual review of investment over the last four or five years, static to slightly increasing uh, to around it, roughly it's around 300 billion per year dollars of investment in in low carbon technologies in the energy sector so yeah we're seeing some change it's not fast enough so i think business recognizes it needs to move move faster but it probably needs some more nudging and, and pulling and pushing from government policy and so it's creating that policy framework that gives the investors the confidence that the direction that they're going uh is secure and i i think there's probably a number of areas that you could do that um, people always looking at it. We, we've touched upon carbon pricing. There's, of course, subsidies for fossil fuels. If we accelerate the removal of those, then that creates a, a or removes some of the disincentive to invest in alternatives. Um, and then there's also in different countries, there's sort of non-fiscal barriers to the deployment of, of different technologies. And I, I think they are particularly relevant, uh, for example, on energy efficiency. It's it's not an economic question. It's about changing the rules to to enable and encourage uh, greater energy efficiency. That will be crucial. So, yeah. In summary, the private yeah, I, sector I, is. Sorry, go on. No, go ahead. So, go close. Finish what you're saying. No, I mean just it, it it just it's it's clear that in and around COP, we're seeing the public the private sector saying we are willing to act. There is investment. Uh, there is technologies, but it's not being deployed at sufficient scale. So, yeah, governments have a role in, to enable that to, to speed up. You touched on energy security there as well. You know, the, the idea that uh, this gas crisis shouldn't uh, shake people into and companies into to action independently of government simply to be able to to ensure a, a, an affordable energy stream. You know, yeah, is Anthony, in your perception, Things like the gas crisis, these are, are short-term impacts where government just throws more money at the problem until it goes away. But you're already seeing energy companies, uh, uh, gas companies failing in the United Kingdom and, and not just the United Kingdom uh, because of this gas crisis. And uh, the, the average consumer is facing much higher energy bills as well. And we had this discussion five, six, seven years ago as well about energy security. And still, we don't seem any closer to, to solving this problem. So we've got... Lack of security, higher energy costs. We're still polluting uh, the planet at, at an aggressive rate. Um, at which point does uh, does government say enough? And at which point does business say uh, this is our opportunity? Anthony. 
and then Yana. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know. Well, I will keep keep repeating myself. An example in terms of the gas price is energy efficiency. Um, we know it's it's difficult to legislate on, or and it's very very difficult to implement. But yet, it does solve all of these questions simultaneously. It does address energy security. It does address climate change, and it does affect uh, energy poverty because. It is a cheap way in which people can to reduce their energy bills. So it really is something that is staring us in the face, but it, it doesn't happen partly because it's not sexy, uh, but also just because it is more complicated to do. So you're right. This is another crisis. Uh, and it should be that governments seize the nettle and and yeah make this the time to push forward energy efficiency because as i said it addresses all of these three questions simultaneously thank you yana then michael yana yeah i'm just uh, just to add i i read this uh, great book mission economy uh, by mariana Mazzucato uh, recently and she proposes yes, um, yeah she proposes that probably governments should do much more in terms of creating a space for uh, for private companies to to get in right to give but this is probably in our western society it's a preposterous idea to give more power to to governments but uh, um, evidently we'll need to do it but uh, in terms of uh, um, international financial system as, as, as far as i know i believe that oecd uh, works very intensely on tracking on tracking financial flows, uh, both uh, private and public. Uh, so I don't believe that the measurement should be uh, should be such a uh, big issue. As um, we are heading towards transparency, we are heading towards transparent financial system in that regard. Thank you, Michael. I want to hear from Alison on, on the same thing as well, Michael. Can you hear? Well, did you say Alison first or me? No, no, you, you first, Michael. Just in terms of the energy security dynamics of uh, public private sector and uh, the repetition of the same cycle of, of uh, let's not use the word chaos, but uh, the cycle of problems uh, without being able to find a way out of this quickly. Um, I think what uh, also was said by the Commission is very true. If we would have started the Green Deal much earlier, we would not have these problems now because the problems come from uh, well high gas prices, also from a global um, high demand of on, on gas and a shortage, actually. And we know that this will actually stay like this. Um, so uh, the measures to really get independent uh, from fossil fuels um, they have to be taken now unfortunately they are only um, in a mid-term um, effectiveness so the question is what we do immediately to help people in energy poverty um, to still be able to heat their homes in winter um, I think there's a lot of important uh, things being put on the table um, uh, for instance um, to give support uh, to um, energy poor communities, uh, but also, for instance, to uh, ban disconnecting uh, people from the energy grid or from the gas grid uh, during winter when they have to uh, 
heat their homes. Uh, but uh, this does not really solve the problem. The problem is solved by being much more energy efficient, insulating our houses, and also having uh, renewable energies um, much more because they are more cheap than fossil. And this is already true now, but it will be even more true in the future um, with um, them more being developed. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, the, the way forward, I think, for Europe. I, like many say that uh, gas is a bridge technology towards climate neutrality. I currently see that um, now having a lot of investment into gas will not really help us in this transformation, but we should really go into those technologies that we have, saving energy and um, um, and uh, deploying much more renewable energies and, um, and helping the people who are in need now in this very moment. Thank you. Alison, Simton, the, the public-private uh, capacity to, to resolve what essentially is a, an energy security and uh, equity issue. So maybe I, I very much would agree with what's already been said, maybe to add a different point to it. I think it's yet another example of the importance of building resilience. Uh, and in order to do that, you need to actually have a forward-looking plan, understanding what the risks are that you face, whether that's as government, as business, or even as individuals. And then you determine what's the right strategy to try and build that resilience. I mean, coming back to a point that Jana made earlier that I think was really important around how little money is actually spent on adaptation to the physical risk of climate change. Um, we, we do a lot of, uh, we obviously pay a heck of a lot of claims, which are the result of extreme weather events. Uh, and we do a lot of research looking into, okay, well, what caused these? What could have been done differently? What are the lessons we've learned um, through our post-event review capability studies, which we to do with third parties, NGOs, academia. And the conclusions are so, I mean, it's so obvious that for every $1 that you spend building resilience to communities, to businesses, um, to governments, you save five in post-event recovery. And I think that that's a lesson that we, we seem to struggle with as, uh, as humanity, that actually making those investments into resilience does economically pay off. Is the invisible hand uh, uh, waiting to be uh, deployed here more so than policy making in the sense that it, it, your insurers, not just Zurich but others obviously, uh, would not be able to finance uh, any public authorities where they're failing to, to invest in this because the, the, the long-term risk would be too high. You know, how does that dynamic play in terms of uh, finance and insurance? Is, is this kind of market uh, mover uh, dynamic something which is underplayed at the moment or something which has, still has a lot of uh, potential to uh, really force people to take climate change seriously. Even if they don't agree with the science, they have to agree with the economics. Alison. Yes, although that might act a little bit too slowly as being the, uh, the, the tool. And I think it's much better if we work collectively as public policy with government and regulation, as well as through business. So that I don't think it should be business alone determines what is insurable and what is not. I think the, I mean, to, to your point on actually would we ultimately end up in a position where insurers are effectively saying if you do not build the following flood defenses or you don't provide the following protection against um, extreme fire events then you're not insurable it, i mean to, to some extent that clearly happens already today we have a one of the largest risk engineering teams and a fantastic natural hazards practice and built out climate resilience services that 
does exactly that to help businesses understand the risks that they face, they're exposed to, and how they can build resilience. Um, but I don't think it's our, it, it, it's our job to say, okay, doing a different set of activities could change the amount of risk that you face. And we would hope that collectively people would want to protect their lives and their livelihoods. Um, but ultimately, it's for governments to regulate around what is actually going to be insurable into the future. And they need to, because uh, a lot of the solutions that are necessary would require public infrastructure investment rather than just individual. Okay, thank you, Philippe. On this as well, in terms of uh, how uh, you use nudge factors, uh, uh, you know, European financing touches many different areas, cohesion funds, for example, as well. You know, how structured uh, is this kind of dynamic of investing in resilience? Um, and are there any punitive elements where member states which don't invest in resilience uh, do not receive more funding? Or is, if that isn't the case, should that happen? Okay, I'll answer your question. But before, if I may put a bit of spice in the in the debate, uh, it's just spice to, away. so the the, the reinsurance uh, sector was uh, the first one uh, of being interested in in climate science, and they are to be praised for that. Uh, many years ago, when I was working uh, on, on on modeling, uh, those were the first I, I was in contact with. Now, in the debate on adaptation, uh, uh, it's clear that we need to increase the investment on adaptation. But most of the local constituencies tell us, look, we don't have the data. We don't know enough about this. And I would like to call here for uh, more transparency in the uh, information and more dissemination of the economic information and risk-related information that insurance and reinsurance have towards the local uh, authorities, that would help them tremendously in planning their investment and therefore engage in uh, adaptation policies. And to answer your question about the uh, investment, well, we saw that in the recovery uh, package in Next Generation EU, um, the part um, on adaptation uh, and is probably insufficient. Also, the part on research and innovation itself. But we can't force the member states. Of course, there are some guidelines uh, uh, by the Commission, and we repeat those. But in the end, we know very well that the powers of, of the Commission there is limited, and it's up to the member states really to think at their own interest on the long term and not only on short term to make this investment uh, the best way to rebuild better. But why should member states that don't take this direction receive European Union funding? We, we, the rule of law, for example, the discussion is withholding funding until there's compliance with rule of law. Why should the European Union fund projects which don't uh, achieve uh, the level of resilience and the level of uh, carbon reduction which are necessary? Surely the climate issue is perhaps even more important than the rule of law, Philippe. This is highly political question. I will avoid it. And, and I would say, uh, in a short, it's their money. <laughs> we should never expect that the European Commission can decide alone on member states' money. We never do that. They, we propose, uh, they decide. It's their money. We should put that to one or two commissioners and see if we get a different response. Let's ask the politician in the House. Michael, uh, should this be the case? Should the European Union be withholding funds from member states that don't invest efficiently in uh, resilience issues, because this is a waste of money. You know, we heard from Alison, it's, it's one 
one dollar uh, and resilience uh, saves five as well why are we throwing uh four uh four euros down uh, the drain literally uh when it uh, it comes to uh, european union taxpayers money michael i think we're having some tech issues here just give a sec can you unmute michael Uh, I'm there we go. sorry, yeah, I you're didn't good. understand your question. Um... Okay, so so basically, why uh, why should the European Union uh, give money to member states that fail to invest in resilience uh, when you, we heard from Alison that one euro uh, invested in, in resilience and adaptation will save five uh, five euros and achieve the climate help achieve the climate objectives we do this with the rule of law it's already on the table we do this with other dimensions as well is this something uh, is this stick required as well as the carrot uh, to ensure that uh, there's climate compliance i think you're having problems there okay i mean it would Let's be see. best for me to to connect the next person i just try to reload uh, and then Go ahead, do that. We'll come back to you in just a moment. And technical team will give you some assistance there. Yana, I know you'll be able to answer that particular question. Let's talk about the climate leadership uh, on this as well. Um, you know, what are the leadership dynamics? And I want to ask Anthony the same. Leadership dynamics at, at play uh, in Glasgow. Uh, is, uh, is this simply a matter of the big players carving up uh, a deal? Or uh, you know, is the, the, the US in the driving seat now and uh, hoping for Chinese compliance? and uh, the European Union uh, uh, trying to have goodwill towards all nations. How, what are the leadership dynamics at play here, Jana? Well, uh, first of all, yes, they are the uh, big players which are, um, which are in the lead for sure. Uh, it was mentioned that uh, G20 will have in Rome just before COP26 uh, a summit. And um, I believe that lots of Lots of uh, negotiation tracks will be covered in Rome already. Uh, probably wording um, on some issues will probably be defined. Um, I don't know about uh, about commitments. Uh, this is uh, still a big question mark, but definitely yes. Uh, probably you've heard that uh, UK presidency is fresh uh, is uh, pressing very hard uh, on on G20, and that's. Uh, they are probably the ones, uh, the ones who are in the lead. But at the same time, uh, we should not forget that uh, climate negotiations are mostly about developed and developing countries' um, relations, um, which are um, which are in a sense very fragile. They can be um, ultimately um, uh, breakable sometimes. So. Um, the, this is the, the, the general context that um, at least I, I, can, I, I can see it. Uh, so it's not just about uh, uh, it's just not, not just about commitments, it's also about who is affected uh, the most and how to compensate uh, for um, the previous emissions uh, and how to calculate, as we, it was mentioned before, how to um, put the, the sufficient and proper time frames and uh, 
to do both uh, uh, both adaptation and mitigation. So uh, yes, uh, dynamic between between developing and developed is uh, even more um, crucial, I would say. Thank you. Uh, Anthony, the same question on leadership. Uncle uh, Juncker was asked uh, about some elements of, of uh, I think it was uh, the Eurozone at the time. And he said, we know what we need to do, but uh, we won't be able to do it with the electorate. And is this the same case uh, with the leadership here uh, for Glasgow? Is that politicians know what needs to be done, but the, the courage to bring that home to the electorate, regardless of which uh, nation it is, uh, may be lacking. Where's the leadership going to come from? What do you think the dynamics are at play? Um, I mean, I, I agree with Yada in terms of its, as mentioned, the G20, the dynamic between the developing and the developed world. Um, I think we'll see leadership in multiple forms because, uh, as we've talked through, it's not this is a this is a a cop about implementation. So implementation is on several on some level on the national government responsibility but it is also for non-state actors so uh and the way in which the the cop calendar over the two weeks is set up we have on the monday and tuesday the heads of state and then we have specific sector days so for example we'll have energy we'll have uh, environment I mean, nature there's finance etc so on each of those i would anticipate that there will be announcements uh, of multilateral uh initiatives to achieve more rapid mitigation or adaptation within those particular sectors. So in some ways on each of those days, we will have different leadership. Uh, and the intention is that, it, that these will add up to a greater package of adaptation and mitigation measures over and above the NDCs and the, the, the 100 billion that has been talked about. So yeah, there is multiple degrees of, of leadership. It's also, of course, as you mentioned, the public. Um, is it that they're scared to bring back something to the public? I don't think so. I, I think it is a recognition to some degree of the the, the enormous challenge that we're facing. Um, when we're talking about decarbonizing the global economy within 30 years, this is yeah, is a transformation that we haven't seen before. So it is daunting for, for, for many, many politicians. Um, but I I think the public is there. And I, I think opinion poll after opinion poll says that they're looking for governments uh, and industry to move further and faster on climate change. So I, I really do hope that the, the leaders that are in, in Glasgow don't use the their, don't use the excuse that the public doesn't want to move on this issue as a reason for not getting more, ambi more ambitious. Alison, how do you see this as well? You're coming from, from the commercial side. Do you, you, you think the leadership dynamics, as has just been described by Jan and Anthony, um, are, are there? Or do you think there's still uh, more goodwill from the public on this uh, than perhaps is, is uh, understood? How do you read it? I should try and avoid political questions, I think. Um, the, I think from, I mean, we, we, we measure one of the things we put in our scorecard is public sentiment, and we still have that as amber. Uh, because whilst there are plenty uh, in the public who are very, very vocal about the need for transition to be very rapid, there are unfortunately still plenty who uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. So, so I'm not sure I, I could say definitively the public are behind taking fast action. I, I think our corporates, um, I, I think many in the corporate sector now are coming out very vocally 
with importantly not just commitments but concrete actions and, and the plan can be tracked against and i think one of the things that we would call for is is for all industries to be under similar kind of disclosure standards so we have very level playing fields uh, if we all agree to science-based taxonomies and uh, approaches that we can all measure within industry obviously uh, the net zero asset owners alliance was convened by the un uh, should be 18 months ago now and came up with methodology which all of its members have now uh, set and committed to target reduction against that by 25. Uh, we just um, we're one of the founding members of the net zero insurance alliance to do the same thing for the insurance underwriting uh, i think uh, and obviously it's not just with the assets insurers as each industry group agrees a method by which it wants to be held to account. Um, it wants to provide a transparency so that our investors, our customers, our employees, all of the people who we work with can make a choice transparently around who they do business with, who they choose to work for, and who they're, who they're a customer of, based on what we're, what we're committing to do, but more importantly, the tracking of progress against those commitments that we've made. So I think it, it's, it's action now, not words. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Let's see if we can uh, hear you and you can hear us uh, this time as well. You, you're reconnected. Uh, there's a couple of questions. I'll give these questions to, to Michael to start with. We don't have a lot of time left. Um, and Mantis asks, why yeah, is the adaptation of the food sector to climate change, why has it disappeared from the COP26 goals? I'm not sure it has, but uh, maybe there's less emphasis on it. Uh, you want to take that one first, Michael? So is there not enough emphasis on food sector this time around? I um I can I I'll give you something on uh, on leadership um <laughs> though I didn't yeah, go, really go, fully understand go. the question. It's, it's um, okay. Go, go ahead I, on leadership. Really interesting is um that we see the Fridays for Future movement really coming back to the streets also with the Corona um uh, lockdown phasing out on on many places. So we just had a massive uh, strike um people coming out in belgium um we had one just before the german election and um on the 22nd uh, so next week um um or this week actually and um, we are seeing the global uh, climate strike so i i believe that this youth movement is coming back um really asking their leaders uh, to be accountable to them asking their questions look this is about my future um, um and science is clear what my future will look like if you are not acting and i think this is a really powerful message that leaders have to reply to um if they want to be accountable towards uh yeah their uh, constituency and i'm looking uh, forward to have this um this strong messaging from from the public uh, back uh, in the debate and I believe that uh, the initiatives in the direction of phasing out coal by the year 2030 um, and phasing out the combustion engine, this is also really important. And it's nice and it's good that um, there, there are these initiatives, but I hope really that, yeah, the leaders will then come out and be bold as it was said in the beginning uh, to really make these important steps and commit then to, for instance, phasing out coal. Phasing out coal would be really this, you know, long, a low hanging fruit that would save us a lot of problems if we are early out of coal, because this is still the biggest CO2 emitter and it would give, would give us actually some time in uh, areas where it's more difficult to reduce emissions. So I hope uh, that this 
combination will actually create a situation where we can be a uh, one step more towards really fulfilling the Paris Agreement after the the, um, the COP26 than we were before. Thank you, Michael. Uh, we're pretty close on time. And I want to get to some uh, closing statements in just a few minutes, but I want to talk really briefly about technology. Is technology uh, the answer? And if I can just run through the panel and ask each of you uh, very quickly uh, what you think of this as well. You, all the policy dynamics have touched on this. I'm sure you're going to say technology, yes, is part of the answer. But do you see uh, big moments? For example, hydrogen uh, is, is just one example of how that can be deployed. Um, you know, the technology from 5G and smart cities and automation, things like this as well. Um, you know, is, is technology a bigger part of this equation than we're uh, currently uh, describing? Uh, Philippe. Uh, we need to be very careful with the excessive hopes uh, on technology only. Uh, it's clear that behavior has a big role to play and change of organization of the society uh, itself. Uh, technology is part of the solution, that's obvious, but it's uh, actually uh, probably a smaller part that we think of. Uh, and the COVID crisis has shown also what can be achieved through technology, what can be also achieved through uh, behavior changes, uh, but there's a lot to do on urbanism and uh, and uh, other uh, activities. The way we build, we rebuild the recycling of materials in the construction sector. Those are in every area of society. And we have not talked about the uh, reform of agriculture because it's a very sensitive topic. But this is also an area where there's a lot of potential. And uh, it's not necessarily uh, technology there. Um, uh, for instance, we are promoting quite a lot in the EU uh, nature-based solutions. Those have no technology, but those are solutions that are economically feasible and deliver results on climate, okay. on biodiversity, in resilience in general. So, yes. Thank you. Uh, just a quick answer from a few others. Jana nodding enthusiastically there. Alison, technology, uh, should this be a bigger part of the discussion than, than currently is the case? So assuming by technology, and I think the questioner was saying that it's much broader than simply negative emission technology, then absolutely yes. I mean, if I just look at it from a corporate perspective, um, kind of three steps for corporates to take in, in thinking about this. So the first abatement, understanding how to actually reduce the amount of emissions. I think technology plays a massive part in that, whether that's through sensors, as you've you spoken about before, infrastructure. I mean, there's a huge amount that technology can play in actually supporting abatement. And looking at compensation for the amount of emissions. Obviously, we talked about carbon pricing, different carbon trading schemes. Again, technology can support and facilitate that around the world. And then, of course, yes, finally, neutralization and technology can play an important role both in nature-based solutions, so in assessing things like soil quality, as well as actually things like direct air capture storage and CCUS more broadly. So yes, I think technology plays an important role across the world. Thank you. Quick word from Anthony in this, and then we'll start our, our closing statements. Go ahead. Yeah, two things on technology. Uh, firstly, it gives us more reason to be optimistic. Um, if we look at the technology prices when the Paris Agreement was signed, for example, in renewables compared to where they are now, we know that there can be huge and rapid changes uh, that can change the economics of, of existing industry, industrial sectors, obviously the power sector first and foremost. Secondly, there are yeah interesting areas. Um, animal agriculture, around 15% of global emissions. And we know that there is, yeah, lab-grown meat is a possibility. It may not be 
what everyone wants to eat, but it may be what a large proportion of the world wants to eat, which could lead to really rapid reductions in other areas. So technology does have a role, but it has to go hand in hand with public acceptance. Thank you. We're pretty close on time. So let's go to our closing sound bites. 30 seconds each. Philippe, you can kick off. Time to implement and act faster and forcefully. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Uh, Michael, over to you. I think, yes, yes, go ahead. Um, you can hear us now, Michael. Yeah, go. Okay. Um, well, I just, it's interesting also to comment on the technology question. A lot of technologies, they are already here. So we do not need to invent something new, but we can actually use the technologies at hand, renewables, uh, for instance, energy efficiency. And I think it's also that a lot of citizens are already ready to change and they demand change. And it's quite interesting to see also what even big companies ask for in terms of change. Um, so the question is really the game changer uh, is really is politics, the political sphere fast enough to um, to do the developments that have already happened within the society and invented within technology. And I hope uh, that we will be. Um, but uh, let's see. Um, we I think we are more smart after a Glasgow. Thank you, Jana. Very short, um, besides bold commitments, I believe that we need to uh, have courage to listen to all negotiating, uh, negotiation parties. Uh, so uh, besides, uh, uh, in, on technologies and on technology side, besides um, artificial intelligence, we need um, emotional intelligence as well. Excellent, thank you, Anthony. Yeah, I think the the UK presidency has an objective or maybe it's not an unofficial objective is keeping 1.5 degrees alive. And I think that really we need to keep that in mind in terms of we may not make the pledges add up to 1.5 degrees. But if they don't, we need to have a mechanism to ensure that that can happen on the short term. So that may mean coming back with revised NDCs within a couple of years that may be other means of verification that maybe other ways to accelerate technology transfer etc but that's the overall objective that we come out of glasgow with a pathway to keeping 1.5 degrees alive staying alive maybe the the team can play a side with that at the end as well allison last word to you so thank you so i think maybe i should be more optimistic because i think we've heard through this great discussion there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic that with governments, with corporates, with individuals acting together with sufficient speed and courage, back to Philippe's point, I think we can make this a decade of action. And with all the technological advances, um, as Michael said, already exists today. Uh, we have the tools in our hands. And if it, all it's going to take is courage, then we should be optimistic we can make this work. Thank you so much to Philippe, Michael, Jana, Anthony and Alison for excellent contributions today. Thank you to our audience uh, for taking time to be with us also. And uh, to Tamara, Zoran and Malta and the social media team at Euractive. Uh, you don't see them, but uh, they make a, everything work behind the scenes for us as well. And thanks to Zurich uh, for supporting the discussion. Much more to come on this topic in the, the coming weeks. I uh, wish you a good day wherever you are. I'm Brian McGuire.